Greetings, NSA Nation, and welcome to your 2012 November edition of Voices of Experience. I'm Theo Andros, and I will be your host. We kick off this month's edition of VOE with speaker, author, and innovation expert, Steve Shapiro. Steve's latest book is titled Best Practices Are Stupid, which has me questioning the title of this segment and VOE in general. Steve is an innovation evangelist and has done some pretty innovative things with how he delivers his message and how he leverages his content. Join me now as Steve Shapiro shares with us how he does it. Because I do my speaking a little different, I mean, even though I'm a keynoter, I have gamified my speeches, if I can call it that. So we actually, I mean, I could Steve, play. you can call whatever you want. <laughs> be, in, be innovative. You've gamified your speaking. What does that mean? Well, when I do a speech, instead of it being me up there talking and people sort of falling asleep in a dark room, we've actually created a game. And we've actually multiple games, multiple experiences, multiple things people do. So one so, of them is called personality poker, as an example. So imagine a room with a thousand people. Everybody shows up and they get five poker cards. Look like regular poker Sounds cards. Sounds like my kind of party. Uh, no, no betting. You can't <laughs> oh, lose. No. Well, you can lose if you don't have a personality. Right. Story. <laughs> what happens is on these poker cards are specially designed. There are words that will describe particular behavioral traits, attributes, innovation styles. And all people do is we get people standing up trading cards and the objective is to get five cards where the words best describe how you see yourself. You can also gift cards to other people so that they get to see how they are perceived by others. And basically, when you're done with the trading, based on the five cards you have in your hand, the combination of the suits, the colors, and the numbers will tell you all about your personality. We spend the rest of the time having that interactive to conversation about the different styles, the different colors, the different numbers. I mean, audiences must love this. They do, because we're talking about them, and it's Unlike most personality tests, if you want to call it that, you have to go take a test beforehand or you go take the test afterwards. Here it is done real time, literally in five minutes, every person has taken the test. And then the cool thing is it's not just about the result, but it's about the process. So what we found, especially with people afterwards, what they'll do is they'll take the cards and they'll have conversations. Hey, do you think I'm, do you think I'm overly sensitive? Do you think I'm bossy? You know, I got five bossy cards when I played personality poker. Is there something people should be telling me? And so it's just this great insight and epiphany that people have in a fun game. What are the personality traits on the cards? How many of them are there? There's 52 poker cards. Are there 52 personality traits? It depends on how you slice it. So there's four primary innovation styles, which tie back to the four steps of the innovation process, which tie back to the four suits. Okay. Within those, there are actually two different versions. So for example, the clubs are all about getting things done. Two types of clubs, though. There's one set of clubs based on the numbers, which are much more about planning and being organized and being methodical, where another set of clubs, the 10th through ace of clubs, are all about the action result and bottom line. So they don't care so much about how it gets done as long as it gets done. So the suits have meaning, the numbers have meaning, and then also the colors have meaning. So the black cards are a little more what people would refer to as left-brained, whereas the red cards are more right-brained. And we do some things, we actually get the whole room reconfigured where on one side of the room are all the people with black cards, all the red cards on the other side. It's a fantastic snapshot of you know, what the organization's makeup is. Like Instantly we can see it visually, and it's very cool. You wrote a book called Best Practices Are Stupid? Yes. Let's talk about that because our audience is speakers, and our, we, we are always looking at what, what's working for other speakers. But I gather from your title of your book that you don't support that idea, that strategy. I'm not so much against best practices, but there are two issues that I do have with them. Okay. The, f- the first one has to do with the fact that if you are replicating someone who, especially as a competitor or is in a close enough space and they've already done something, 
if you're trying to do what they're doing by the time that you've implemented it, they've moved on to the next thing. So you'll never catch up. It's a game of catch up. But the bigger issue is that what works for one person may not work for another person. What works for one organization may not work for another organization. Now, I want to run my business a very particular way. I listen to other speakers, and if I started to implement what they did, maybe I'd be successful, maybe I wouldn't be, but it might be a conflict with my personal values and beliefs in terms of how I want to run things. So it's important to recognize that there is not a one-size-fits-all strategy. And I guess I'll throw in the last point, which is the breakthroughs. Breakthroughs that happen, something which is a fundamental game-changer, which I'll tell you the speaking industry needs some game-changing right now. It's been on an incremental growth path. And I think we can really do some massive change if we recognize the fact that these big innovations come from fundamentally different domains of expertise. So not from speakers, but it could be entrepreneurs. I hang out with people in multi-level marketing. I hang out with people who are in real estate. I hang out with people in so many different disciplines because I learn more from them about how to improve my speaking business than by hanging out with speakers. What are the innovations that the speaking industry needs to adapt? Some of the obvious things, and I don't have the answers, but one of the things I do think is happening right now is clearly there's a uh, technological shift, which we need to be aware of, and what's the implication of that on speaking? And you know, I know we keep on coming back to we're speakers, we're speakers, we're speakers, but the reality is I think what's happening more and more in the marketplace uh, is that people want somebody with a domain of expertise that can then get delivered in a lot of different ways. For example, I always talk about multiple levels of innovation. Innovation as an event is the lowest level. Well, guess what? As speakers, we are about events. This is the lowest level of value we could possibly contribute. At the second level, it's innovation as a process. So every client I speak with, I always say to them, let's not view this event as the thing, like we're done when it's over, but instead view this as the start of a process. The event kicks off something bigger. So we actually start to think through how do we get some momentum and traction after the event? that actually creates results that are measurable for the organization. It might be more speeches, it might be webinars, it might be articles, but it really is much more about creating sustainable value, and that's, I think, what's becoming extremely important for organizations. So tell us about your business model. So to tell you about my business model, I first have to tell you about me just real briefly. Okay, please. I'm not a person who aspires to make millions of dollars. I'm not a person who ever has any intention or desire to have a lot of employees, if any employees. For me, it is sort of a lifestyle. And I know some people say you need to treat it as a business. And I do treat parts of it as a business. Well, it may be a lifestyle business. It is a lifestyle business, absolutely. For me, I love to travel, so I always want to be speaking. But I also want to find ways of creating revenue without having to be on the road. We tend to think about product, which is one of the ways of creating passive income, as what I'll call tell-me types of product books, CDs, DVDs, even membership sets. These tell me what to do. I'm really looking at how do I create more enablement tools, things that people can actually use and embed in their daily work. Such as what? Well, personality poker is one of those things, which is, so they play the game at the speech. They only leave with five cards. I say, ah, this is great. I want to do this with my team. Guess what? They got to go buy the decks. They got to go buy the cards. They got to buy the book to understand it. And so there's sort of that back end without ever having to sell it because people have had the experience and want more of it. Well, what's fascinating about that, the personality poker, is that you get 100% participation. If you send out a test take prior, your opt-in rates would not be very high, I would think. Typical is 20 30%. 20 30% participation when they take the test on their own. Yes. 100% when you facilitate the test. Right. 
And then what we can do, and we're in the process of building some of the technologies, what do you do after the event? So you took, you have your five cards. One of the things we're looking at is how do we real time have people text in their five cards so that we can boom, write on a graphic, at least see who's in the room real time, as opposed to having people raising their hands. But also after they leave, they can enter them in online, get a printed out report, and that leads them through, again, more products, things that they can be focused on. Let's go back and talk about your specific business system. And the reason why is let's be mindful of our of our listeners and what would be valuable to them. Obviously, the people listening at home are not going to go out and create their own po- deck of poker cards. I mean, that's kind of your thing. But what you said a moment ago that I thought was very interesting is that you you really almost have to start with where your va- what your values are. Yes. And look at what kind of life do you want so that your business supports your life. You're not giving up your life to support your business. Which, which is also why, I mean, for people who are uh, speakers and businesses, they would probably think of their business as a B2B business. That's sort of the common vernacular, business to business. I actually think of my business as a B2B2B business. And what I mean by that is instead of my trying to sell speeches to businesses, I try to find people who have connections with those businesses. Now, the simplest version, obviously, are the bureaus. They have those relationships. But I also look at my body of work. So I don't think of myself as a speaker, I think of myself as having a body of work around innovation, and I've built these partnerships with organizations who have distribution, which is fantastic. So you can take, for example, a training organization that I have a partnership with, they're in every single Fortune 500 company. So they have the distribution, they have the reach. They're also developing the training modules on their own. They have instructional designers, so I don't have to pay for that. And they will deliver it. So I'm, we'll do a train the trainer and then their people run off and do it. I have no employees. I don't have any freelance. It's their business. They make the money and I take a slice of their business. So you're the subject matter expert. Yes. It's around your content, but you've partnered with a training company. You have their own instructional designers. They create the T3, the train the trainer program. And what role do you play in that other than providing your content? I help in shaping the workshop. Uh, what we're going to do very soon is I'm going to go into a studio and record a series of five-minute videos that will be used during the training. Because one of the things that, when I've done this in the past, it's been extremely effective. First of all, it gets my face in front of people, which is great because then somebody's in a training class and they say, hey, I want to hire this guy to do a keynote speech. We paid this other company to do the training. But the other thing is it makes sure that the messages that I think are the most important that I know have to be delivered in a particular way, I can say them in my words and people can watch them and hear them exactly as I want them to be heard. You almost anticipated my next question. One of the challenges with doing something like this is is how do you control the quality of the delivery of your material? As you described, you do your videos that are inserted, but how do you how do you control the quality of the trainer de- delivering the rest of the program? Part of it is who you choose as partners. I mean, this is the largest training company that I'm partnering with on this particular thing, and we're doing the same thing with a uh, online portal, an innovation portal that we're creating. Same exact type of thing. So it's about choosing the right partners who have their brand at stake. I mean, here's the thing is, yes, I screw up, it affects me and my business. They screw up, even if it affects my brand, it affects their business. Their businesses are bigger than my businesses. They have more at stake than I do. So I just make sure I have the right partners whose brand is more important to them than my brand is even to me necessarily. Obviously, having your content delivered by trainers is not something everybody can do. What's a good methodology or a good process someone can go through to determine if their content lends itself to this model? I think the key thing that you have to have is, again, a body of work, something which is a process or it has uh, content that will change the behaviors of people. And you have to be able to create chunks around it. So my last book that I just did, The Best Practices Are Stupid Book, is intentionally designed around 40 discrete 
concepts. Each of them are a separate body of work on their own. So in each one of those, 40 becomes a module in the Not training? Not all of them. We've selected certain ones that we thought were most important. We changed the order around. We combined a couple together. And we created basically five different sections of this training. And each of them have three or four different learning points. But everything came back from the book. So when you have this format of 40 tips, 70 tips, whatever it is, it makes it extremely easy to then create 40 videos, 40 tools, 40 whatever. So did you write the book with the back end in mind? Yes, to some degree I did. Part of it was this book is a next generation of an earlier book that I'd written, which I had no concept of what I was doing. It was really just sort of a stream of consciousness book that became really popular. Which book was that? It was called The Little Book of Big Innovation Ideas, and it was 82 tips on how to create a culture of innovation. 100 pages, self-published, uh, customized for every single client, which was awesome. And I, I sold tens of thousands of, of that thing. And then Penguin wanted the rights to that, so I had to stop doing that. So then I really stepped back and said, well, what am I looking to do and create with this? And I started to think about the back end. And the, the downside, I will say, is working with a commercial publisher in some respects hurts your back end because they have certain ownership rights that prevent me from taking, for example, what I wrote in that book and sticking it online into an interactive experience. So there are some downsides well, and upsides. I think that's a real important point to expand on because I think when most speakers look at publishing a book, they're, they're, looking, they're focused only on the book. And when you partner with a big publisher, you're probably not as mindful about what kind of box you're putting yourself into. It sounds like that if you had it to do over again, possibly, you, you, know, you would have retained some control of that content. Maybe. I, I went into this one consciously choosing to work with them because I really like Penguin and Portfolio. The imprint is just, I'll say, probably one of the best publishers out there. What do you right like now. about them? First of all, Adrian Zakheim, the guy who runs the imprint, is probably the genius of genius. They've been one of the only successful publishing imprints in all of the all of the publishers out there. You know, they did all of Seth Godin's books. And so Seth Godin's methodology is built into the way they even think about things. And they were very hands-on, very supportive, very active in the process. They have a good name, which has helped a lot. So the book has done very well, and it's helped really build my brand even further. So you do commercial books not so much for the money, and maybe you're giving up certain things. But the nice thing is there are ways that you could even license the content back from the I was going to ask you, is there a way that you can do that? Absolutely. And, and I would imagine if you know going in that's something you want to do, it's probably easier to negotiate that at the front end. I wish I had yeah. negotiated <laughs> the front end, but we're doing that now. We're okay. having conversations right. about how do we license back the content to be repurposed in particular places that would be non-competitive to the book itself and might actually create more demand for the book. So, I mean, really, they're just concerned about anything that is going to hurt book sales. Careful, Steve. You might have just touched on a best practice. that uh... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody once told me that I tell people that, you know, a best practice is to not use best practices. And that is a... <laughs> <laughs> so it hurts the mind when you think about that. <laughs> Thank you, Steve Shapiro. Innovative indeed. You know, maybe best practices aren't so bad after all. Now we shift gears a bit and go behind the scenes, not with a speaker, but with a speaker's agent, manager, and staff. Some speakers have different people to serve in these different roles, but not Steve Spangler. He has one person who does all of this and more. Her name is Carly Reed, and you'll meet her in a moment. First, let me tell you a little bit about Steve Spangler and Steve Spangler Science. Now, if you don't know who he is, then maybe you know his work, or maybe your kids do. See, Steve exploded so to speak, as an internet sensation in 2005 when a video of one of his experiments went viral on YouTube. Ever seen the Mentos and a soda bottle erupting geysers experiment? 
Yeah, that was Spangler. It was such an enormous hit that it landed him on the Ellen DeGeneres show, where he is now a frequent guest. He has since parlayed his 10 minutes of fame into an enormously successful business, teaching teachers how to teach science in a way that makes learning fun. He has his own show on YouTube, The Spangler Effect, and by show I don't mean a bunch of videos he uploaded from his basement. I mean a real show, under contract with YouTube with over 51 million views. He's a master of social media and has had great success in monetizing his Facebook following. It's not just soda bottles that are exploding around this guy, it's his business too. And an important part of his business is his manager, agent, and staff person, Carly Reed, who joins us now to share her perspective on their success. What do you do for Steve? What is your job? Well, I've got several roles there, but my main role is Steve's manager agent for the business, okay. which includes a lot of different hats. <laughs> Were you hired to be his manager and his agent? What, I wasn't. What did you start out as? I started out as customer service, kind of fell into this role of, of what I'm doing now. So. Which is what? Steve's manager. What does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, I'm pretty much his first line of defense. So anything coming in, whether it's a call for a speaking engagement, a new product idea, a TV producer, book deal, whatever it may be, uh, goes through me first. A big part of my job is saying no and making sure that we take the right thing for Steve and it's the right match. And so no sometimes is easier than saying yes and getting into the wrong situation. So how do you determine what's a good fit? Steve did a, a great job in the very beginning with incorporating me into his speaking world and his speaking business. And two things that he did. One, he uh, took me to his events. So I went to every speaking event that he did, not just one, and I didn't just watch a video. I actually went to these events, and I think it's a huge factor behind the success of what I do today because I know exactly what he does. And so when clients call in and say, well, I want this, this, and this, I know that, no, you don't want that. That doesn't work with our model and what we do. And immediately I'm able to tell from experience that this would be a good or bad match for, for what we're ask, they're asking us to do. For speakers who have staff, your suggestion, your advice then would be to get your staff out to see you speak. Yes. And you wouldn't believe how many staff members at NSA that I've met that when I say, what do you do with your speaker? Do you travel with your speaker? Do you even know what they speak on? They don't know. And so the biggest advice that I could give to any speaker out there is take any staff with you that's representing you to your speeches. Don't just show them a video. Let them see what you do. Believe in what you do. That's the other big piece of it. They need to believe in your message, what you do, and what you can do to be ordered to sell something like that. So what should a speaker look for when they're selecting a staff person? Oh, that's a pretty broad question. I get that a lot from different speakers, and I wish I had a magic bullet for you on this one. The most important thing I would say would be to set your intentions. So why do you want a staff person? Is it because you are needing someone to cold call? Do you need a staff person because you just have admin stuff, mailings, whatever it might be? Know those intentions first so you can really try to look for that person. I think one of the challenges for many speakers is that they have a small organization, and so they're trying mm -hmm. to find one person to do many things. Yeah. Is there someone out there who can do everything, or should you divide up those tasks among multiple people? If you can find someone that can do everything, I think it's great. I don't know if it's completely possible all the time, though. Okay, so what types of things should a speaker hire a staff person to do? 
types of things. Sure. What type of? <laughs> is that a really dumb question? No, it's not a dumb question <laughs> at all. It's hard because speakers' businesses are so different. You know, their models that they do, the coaching that they do. I think that's why setting that intention of why you want a staff person, not just oh, I think I need a staff person. Have a reason behind that and know why. All right, so what would be an example of a reason why someone should hire a staff person? A lot of reasons that I hear is just that people need help booking. A lot of speakers that I, I've been fortunate to come to NSA since Steve brought me on, and uh, I've learned a lot from the other speakers, which has helped me understand the speaking world. And a lot I hear from the speakers is, I don't know how to say no. I'm afraid of saying uh, a fee that's maybe higher than what I think that I'm worth, even though I know that I'm worth that. I'm just, I can't say it. Let somebody else say that for you. Take that pressure off of you. It doesn't have to be on you, but you can't have somebody that's doing that that you don't trust. So you better build a good relationship with that staff member that believes in you and you trust them and they trust you to be able to do something like that. When a speaker is looking for a staff person, is there a particular background that lends itself to doing well in this? Oh, I wish I knew that question too. A lot of people have asked me, you know, what my background was, what would be the, uh, what's the magic? Were you a graffiti artist? Or? No. <laughs> no. Yes, you were. You sold paint to hoodlums, spray painting cars or something. Oh, that's didn't about you? one of 20 one things. One of 20 that things. I've done. <laughs> so you, but you did have an entrepreneurial background. I did. I okay. did. I think the most important thing is that you find somebody that you work well with, that trust, that you can trust. Because for me, the speaking business is a really personal business. And in most cases, it's just maybe a speaker and another staff member. In some cases, it's a lot bigger. It doesn't matter, though. That business is extremely personal. It's that person's livelihood. And you better make sure as a staff person that you're in the right place. Because if you're not, you should bow out. If, when you pay your staff person, make sure that they're not being paid off of bookings. Well, I would say that I think that it's a hard position to put somebody in as a sales position because what happens is if you have a staff member that's making only their salary off of your bookings and only your bookings, they may book you out for the wrong intentions. You may oh, go. So you're not aligned on what's the best fit for exactly. the speaker. Exactly. So you want to make sure that you don't set yourself up for that. As a speaker, you don't want to put the staff member in that that position where they feel like, well, I've got a book to to make my salary, but also at the same time they're booking you to make their salary and sending you to the circus, and that's maybe not where <laughs> places you, are not a good fit. Yeah, unless you're places the tiger that are tamer, not. A, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, what is a good compensation model? I don't know. I, you know, I've heard all different kinds out there. There's some that are base plus commission. There are some that are just a, a base and that's it, you know, just a salary. And I've heard just hourly. It really just depends on the, uh, the nature of that office. And some speakers only need somebody for 20 hours and some of them need them full time. So there's a lot of different models out there for that. All right. So we do see a lot of turnover on the staff side of the business. And, yeah. you, and you think that can be traced back to a lack of clarity mm-hmm. on why they're hiring the staff person and then also a lack of understanding of what this, what that speaker's business really is. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that, that it's real important to go see this for the speaker to bring their staff person, actually see what they do to interact with their audience or their customers or their clients so they can mm-hmm. really understand the business. You also mentioned that early on Steve brought you to NSA. How has that made a difference? 
that's made a huge difference for me. Um, I didn't come from a speaking background and being able to come and meet other speakers and understand the world of speaking and see amazing speakers that I would never see anywhere else. Uh, the Mark Sharon Brocks, the Lou Hecklers, and Theo, of course, has been really amazing to kind of see that world. So what can speakers do to, to help empower their staff? I think there's a big piece that uh, to something else that happens when you take staff with you. It's not only that they learn your program, but in my case, for the last six or 12 months, I've been talking to that client, working with that client on the event. Steve's role is to show up and do the session, but the before and after of that really happens with me and how I put the event together. I go to those events to not only see it to the end, but also the client is happy that I'm there. They've worked with me for the last six or 12 months. I know what's going on. So I think that's a really important piece. So you become a relationship manager. Absolutely. Yeah, you really do. I've been working with Steve since 2004. How has the business changed? It's changed a lot. Uh, When I got there, there were 12 people. We were in a different building than we're in now. And right now we have 43 people and lots of different departments that didn't exist in 2004. So it's been really fun to be a part of that and watch it grow. All right. Have you seen, how about as an industry, have you seen any changes in the industry in the last eight years? Yeah, there's definitely been some changes in the industry, funding for schools and for teachers. We're in a unique position where we, our market is really to teachers and parents. So we've got kind of twofold there. We've kind of watched a surge of parents becoming more involved with their children's science studies than ever before because science is being pulled from the classroom. And what's happening is parents are coming in and really taking ownership of my kid will learn science and if I have to do it, that's the way it's going to happen. So we really speak to to both sides. How are you guys utilizing technology in your business? We're doing it a few different ways. Uh, When Steve launched his first book, we went out and did a virtual book, including 30-something videos in our virtual book that was sold on iTunes. And we did that in-house when they said, hey, nobody can do this right now. And we were pretty excited to to be able to do that and kind of got the attention of Apple. From there, it's it's gone into all different kinds of applications for iPad, uh, curriculum books and things like that. But probably the most exciting technology piece that we're a part of right now is YouTube and Google. And we recently were approached by Google to do a show out of their 100 channels. And we are now doing that as well as one of the, uh, we're one of the partners of YouTube education. We're excited to be a part of two pieces of YouTube that have kind of launched recently. One of them is YouTube for Schools. And YouTube for Schools is a new platform where they've taken 600 uh, trusted partners for YouTube that they believe in and they know that share great content for schools. Uh, YouTube for Schools can be accessed now in schools as a learning resource. They've taken out the comments, they've taken out the related videos, and anything that would pop up on there would have to be one of their 600 partners. So we're really excited to be a part of that. You described earlier on, you you called yourself Steve's manager and Mm -hmm. his agent. Mm -hmm. So that's different. How is that different from being a staff member? It is different. My job is really centered around being able to balance the Steve's life, basically. So I really have to balance that between our speaking business, where he goes out and speaks, seminars, whatever it might be, between TV uh, work that we do, as well as the business in general. Steve does have a role at Steve Spangler Science, which is at his desk, and I need to make sure that there's some time for that, as well as keep his marriage together. I work really closely with his wife, Renee, Uh, to make sure that the calendar is not overbooked and that 
it's it's uh, jiving well with his family business and speaking career. So it's a lot to try to balance. What can a staff person in a in a speaker office when there's only two or three employees? What can the the smaller working class speaker learn from the model that you've created on how to better utilize their staff? I think it really starts with kind of being honest with yourself as a speaker. What do you do well in terms of booking yourself or all of those kind of admin office type things? And what are you not so good at? It's okay to go, hey, I'm really terrible at putting contracts together. I need somebody that can do that. And that will really define who you bring in and the strengths that you're looking for. Thank you, Carly. And now, back by popular demand, last year's VOE host with the most and all-around great guy, CSP Brian Walter. He's the chair of the Laugh Lab. Listen carefully as he makes his case for why you should join him in Las Vegas on January 3rd through the 5th, 2013, for what promises to be no laughing matter. Brian? This is Brian Walter, and I have an interesting and actionable statistic to share. 8%. And that 8% could represent you. But let's back up for a little context first. I have reviewed the latest research conducted on how Americans make and break New Year's resolutions. And do you know who sponsored this cutting-edge national research? Nestle's Raisinets. I kid you not. Yeah, kind of shocking that the people who make massively high-calorie chocolate-covered raisins that you scarf down by the box full while sitting on your posterior in a movie theater are the very ones who wanted to confirm that the number one New Year's resolution is to lose weight. Check. That would be true. Pass me another box of raisinettes. That should help. Now, let's ignore all that and focus instead on the equally shocking statistics uncovered by the Raisinets-sponsored research. It found that 68% of Americans choose not to make resolutions at all because they know they will fail. Just 32% actually make them. And of that elite minority, 60% already are convinced that they will fail anyways. Now, remember 8%? That represents the determined sliver of those making resolutions who will take some sort of action and actually succeed with their resolution. Just 8%. So I ask you, Mr. or Ms. Speaker, who's probably listening to VOE in the car, for your 2013 resolution, do you want to be funnier, even if you're not that funny now? Do you want to connect more, engage more, and earn more? Do you want to get more content-related laughs in your speeches? Do you want me to stop asking quasi-rhetorical questions? If so, then register now for NSA's Laugh Lab, and I'll stop talking. It's January 3rd through 5th in Las Vegas, and it represents the very first thing you could possibly do to take action on your laugh-oriented resolution. At the Laugh Lab, you will develop multiple laughter-generating skill sets, like on-screen humor, funny phrasing, story humor, funny physicality, humor with characters, and how to be funny with audience interaction. But here's the interesting twist. You don't even have to wait to start the learning. Through a special offer from SpeakerNet News, after you register, you will be sent an MP3 of We Can Make a Funnier You. This is a SpeakerNet News audio program featuring Tim Gard, Mark Mayfield, and George Campbell. This trifecta of expert laugh makers not only can do funny, they can also teach funny. And no matter how comfortable you feel you are with your humor currently, you will discover powerful new techniques. 
And thanks to SpeakerNet News, the truly funny thing is, this all happens before you even show up in Las Vegas. In fact, the only non-funny thing about the Laugh Lab is that there's only about 70 spots left. Once they're gone, that's it. So act on the information provided by the good people from Nestle's Raisinets and be part of the 8% of Americans who put the first week of January to successful use. This is Brian Walter, and I'll see you at the Laugh Lab. Thanks, Brian. Our next guest is Martin Limbeck from Germany. He tells me he's the number one sales trainer out of over 40,000 in and around Germany, as ranked by two independent publications. He says he's also the highest priced speaker in his space, and, well, he's proud of it. Now, I have no way to verify if any of that is true, and frankly, I don't care. What I do care about is what we can learn from him here in the States. I apologize in advance. His English is not perfect, and some of what he says is difficult to understand, and some of it may even seem old school by our standards. But don't let his accent or his methods prevent you from hearing his message. He's successful for a reason, and join me now as he explains. All right, I'm running my business now for 20 years. I started when I was 27, and before I had a career in the copy machine branch. I was selling fax machines and copy machines. So I learned the selling from the beginning on, door-to-door, cold calls, uh, price negotiation, and all that stuff. Then I was seven years in one of the leading sales training companies as a trainer there. Then I tried to buy that from the owner, but we couldn't negotiate on the price. So I, I opened up my own business at 2000, Martin Limbeck Trainings Team. I have right now eight trainers who are running the business with me. It's a small franchise business, and we are very focused on salespeople and sales leaders. That's what we do. We do a lot of trainings. I developed a nine-step program, uh, two days. Some clients buy that for over three or four years. We do a lot of training on the job and we are very specialized. For an example, there are only few trainers, at least in Europe, who are making live calls in trainings. And my trainers and me, if we are making a cold call training, picking up the phone and show them how to do it. So, and my way goes now thanks five years more into the speaking. Probably the only one right now on three best-selling lists in Germany was a sales book. I'm usually booked for speakings or for big groups. I'm not doing any more the average training, eight to 12 person, video camera and all that stuff. I do that too, but mostly my audience, I'm the highlight speaker for the day, 100 people, 150 people. Speaking, I do a, the biggest group I did, and for Germany, that's that's a lot, 3,000. January and February, mostly I'm on kickoffs. Martin, tell us how you sell your training. The most of the sales speakers or sales trainers cannot sell themselves. They can talk about it, but they are not authentic in doing it themselves. And mostly they, they get stuck up in the negotiation about the price. Because, uh, like here in the States too, the price difference between a normal sales trainer and a good sales speaker you know, is night and day. First thing what I learned a couple of years ago, don't pick up the phone by yourself. What that means, if I, I get a request, I never call the customer myself, I have a sales manager. Most of the sales speakers or trainers, uh, doesn't matter what topic it is, they are not entrepreneurs, they're just trainers. You know, in my back office, eight people working for me. First contact to a new customer makes my sales manager. Then he says to the, to the customer, I might will see if you can talk to Mr. Limbeck about the briefing. Of course I do it, but we make it special. And that's, that's one of the points. 
The other points, when uh, we make an offer, I have like a suitcase with my logo on there. I put a book in there. I put a DVD in there. So my customer already gets something, right? I call it, I work very much with reciprocity. So first of all, I give something to them. Then they book me. Sometimes really we have decoders calling us and they say, if, you don't, if, if we don't book you, we have to send the book and the DVD back. I've said, sure, no, I'm just kidding, it's, it's for you. What happened, usually the D4D is going to the sales staff, so they see me, and then they push again to the management and say, hey, you got to buy this guy because he's great. If they like it, most of the time they do. So we invest a lot in uh, making a very good offer. I found out uh, not a lot of salesperson either, we make that in class two as a topic, how you write really a good offer. A lot of uh, people have now SAP and, and they have a standard you know, you know, uh, offer and I think that has to be very customized, that the customers can feel that I understand his needs and his wishes for a training. So talk about your process for uncovering what their needs are and how it affects the offer that you write to them. Yeah, we work a little bit different. So I have two, two industries I'm, I'm operating in uh, or two branches. We do it different when we, when we booked for speaking or for trainings. So we call it like uh, before we offer a training, we do something really special. I tell my customers, see, why the most trainings don't get the benefit you wish. Because there's a human resource department or maybe the sales director and he says, I think my salesperson have to be better in negotiation for prices. But I found out when I have now the particip participants in class, you know, first of all, they need better questions or to find out, involve more with the customer they serve to, what are really their needs, what are their problems, what kind of solutions I can offer. And sometimes it's not the price because they make a lot of wrong in the process before because they don't understand their customers. So what we sell, we call it two days and we get that paid like a usual training day, two days of developing or like a training on the job. One of my trainers go to the customer He goes out with one of the sales rep to a customer, see how he is doing outside, or make a couple of phone calls with him, looks how he prepares for, for the negotiation with the customer, or how he, he makes his presentation. And then we talk to the management about the process about selling in the company, and then we make it really customized. We don't have a program, like a set program. I mean, I have a nine-step thing too. It's called the new heart selling. But some of my clients take seven parts out of it, others we extend it to 11 parts. So first of all, we go to the customer, talk to the sales reps, and then we make a lot of modeling of excellence. I believe very much in that all strengths are already in the company. For an example, if you have 200 sales reps, there are the 20-80 principle, you know that. They are 20% very good. And we believe very much uh, about success modeling. They gotta be something or modeling of excellence, they, 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 they have strengths, right? For an example, we worked for a customer who was uh, selling furnitures. And the good sales reps, it's very funny, but they just stand closer to the steps when the customers, to the stairs, when the customers come in. Or if you're sitting on a new couch, they don't, they don't say, can I help you? They say, do you want it in leather or you want it in red or in black? So... When we found out that, then we can, you know, transport that to the others. And so we can really work 
pretty much uh, on the on the benefits for everybody what the company has with new ideas from us. All right, so Martin, you do a great job of establishing best practices within your clients' right. organizations. What are the best questions that you train your people to ask when you're selling your services? The first thing what we always ask is, uh, what are the three last years you had as a speaker? Because then I found out already the quality. So you want to know who the client, who the prospect, who they've right. hired in the past. Yes. Then I can see if they play Champions League or just an average league. Right. So that's the good point for my salesperson to know to negotiate then the price. Okay. For an example. And the other thing is what we really ask for is what what should be the benefit out of the one hour speech? What your what your participants or what you want that they take out of the class. Because see there's a difference I found out between the American market and the Europe market when you speak. What's the difference? I think very much, and um, don't kill me, guys, now when you hear to that. I love American speakers because they are very, very great in storytelling. If you come from America to Europe and you make your average speak like you do it here, you will fail. Because typically the Germans, they won't have content, strategies, and methods. See, for, for Europe, all American speakers, usually they're heroes, but what will what will keep in their minds afterwards they always ask themselves when they they listen to a speaker what is in for me what do i take out three ideas three methods three strategies how i can prove my sale and that's that's the difference do you still tell stories in your programs martin yes so i make i, I try to make both worlds because uh, I went to school in the States and I love the States that's my second home here so uh, I found out for myself it's good to have stories people like stories like we all grown up by stories when our parents tell us stories as kids and on the other side you know they really want to have formulation sentence for example if you talk about cold calls for example we still do them in Europe and then people want to have, all right, what should I say to a new customer, for an example? They really want to have the formulation sentence. And so I make a combination of both of them. You mentioned cold calling. Do you do any cold calling within your own business? Not anymore. Uh, I'm happy that, yeah, I'm so good known that we get a lot of requests. But still, my salesperson do it because I have two markets. I have the, the, the most business uh, I make with uh, closed jobs, like a company calls us for a speech, and I make uh, three open seminars a year, and for that we have to make cold calls. We call customers and offer our seminar program. Do you negotiate your fees? Never. I have one fee if I speak five minutes, one and a half hour, or a whole day. That's what I tell my customers also. And I always start my, when the customer asks me for my fee, I always start, my customer spoils me, so you get me four. So I'm known right now as the most expensive sales speaker in Germany, and I tell my uh, customers always, you can trust in, I will be in the future too. So you've positioned yourself as the most expensive option. Yeah, some magazines did that too, so that helps a lot to make PR, so you have to do a lot of things. I'm making now PR for 10 years. Some people ask me, is it worse to do it? I don't know, but you have to. Don't, don't ask what you get out right away. A lot of young speaker or trainers coming out and they all think you put on the website, you have a topic and then you get booked. You have to sell yourself. 
and uh, for that you have to do a lot of things. I'm, I'm called as the king of social media in Germany because I do a lot of Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google+, Xing we have. So I write a lot of articles. I have a YouTube channel. I'm the most seen trainer in Germany with 2 million views right now. So I put a lot of free content into the market. Because some of my colleagues say, why you do that? Other, they, they won't book you if you put so much free content in there. No, they will. Because, see, listening to a video or DVD or CD or reading a book is not the same thing to see the speaker, the trainer, live. And if you're really good, they book you. When in the conversation do you have the fee conversation? I always have that. I always have that. For me, it's very easy. Uh, but is I mean, it the beginning of the call, the end of the call? When in, when, in the, when in the call, in the contact with the prospect, do you have the fee conversation? That's very interesting. Usually, they never ask me at the beginning at my fee. Sometimes at the end, but I put a sentence into my call because I get a lot of uh, uh, recommendations or referrals calls where somebody called me and said, hey, CEO from this and this company told me that you were there last year and had a brilliant keynote, so we want to book you for our kickoff. And if they don't ask my fee, I say at the end, you know what I really loved about this phone call? You're really a good sales director. You didn't ask me about my fee. You really were one of the best speaker for your people. And now he asked, and I said, Oh, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, what is your fee? I said, good that you asked. My, my, my uh, customers spoil me, you get me four. And then I put down my fee. And usually then it becomes very quiet at the end on the other side of the phone. And I only make offer if he says, all right, that's in the budget. If not, he starts to negotiate that or he tries to negotiate that. Then I tell him, like we do it in a, in a hospital. You know, I'm the professor and I have a lot of good doctors too. They are my co-trainers and they have a different fee. So take one of them. And usually then they say, no, we want the original Mr. Limbeck. We want you. So then you have to pay. You have a conversation with the prospect. You go through your process. At the end of it, the fee, your fee comes up. If there's pushback on the fee, what do you say? See... Of course, we, we, we have sometimes that we, like my sales managers, do that. I have a couple good ideas about that. First of all, I have a CD, and I produce that it's a live CD. I only make live stuff. I never go uh, anymore into, in, into a, a studio and make it. If I have a keynote, there's a camera and makes a good tape. So I pr produce them for a buck. So, for an example... Uh, if I ask for my fee and he says we have 150 person sometimes they give it as a present you know it cost me a buck and we sell it for 25 bucks so he, he got a really big benefit on the other side when we do training programs and the customer uh, committing himself for two or three years to work with us I guarantee him the fee during the next 36 months because I raise my fee every second year by customers I work in long term for and I have every year a new fee well, well, because I raise my fee every year. You've been doing this now 20 years Martin. Yes. What do you wish you knew 20 years ago? Wow that's, that's a good question. I think I, I start like most every trainer. Training, speaking, coaching I did customer service I get technical service I, I did secretary training, I did sales training I did presentation training, rhetorical training and I did that 
quite seven, eight years. And then I focused on one thing, just sales training and sales management. You cannot be coach, trainer and speaker. Just do one thing and do it good and do it better than everybody else. And the other thing what I uh, learned or what I like to learn uh, earlier is to go to NSA, GSA, uh, network more with other people. Uh, I'm connected with the most uh, known speakers in Europe. And so we can share. Because if you are booked, uh, for an example, for one kickoff, even if you rock the hall, you're getting standing ovations, they won't book you the next year because they want a different face for the audience. So then make a recommendation for somebody because the clients usually doesn't know the market that good than you do it. So connect with a couple people. What advice would you have for someone starting out in the business today? Never speak for free. Go already over the average. From the first money you got, invest in your company. Become an entrepreneur, not a speaker or a trainer or coach if you want to really make good money on it. And of course, we all do it because we have passion, we have love, we have our heart, we want to give something to the people. But at the end, your refrigerator has to be full. Dankeschön, Martin. Forbes Magazine calls our next guest America's Celebrity CMO. His name is Jeff Hazlett, and you may have seen him on Donald Trump's Celebrity Apprentice when he was the Chief Marketing Officer for Kodak or possibly in ads for Toomey Luggage, or in any number of other shows talking about essential business lessons to drive change and grow profits, which happens to also be the subject of his best-selling book, Running the Gauntlet. He's a big guy with big ideas and one of the hardest-working speakers in our business. He's known as a maverick and a cowboy, but what you may not know is he is that he was a member of NSA way back in the mid-1980s. A lot's happened since then, both to NSA and to him. Join me now as we sit down with Jeff Hazlett. Where do you think you can make your biggest contribution to speakers? Oh, I think just by leading by example. I think to be able to show speakers that you can do things differently than the way you think. I think most of us come into it, and most new speakers, and I'm not going to say young speakers, I'm talking about new speakers because we have a lot of people who are a little bit older that are getting into this business as well. They come in it with this thought process that you have to be successful at speaking by doing this. And so you see the same pictures, the same poses, the same kinds of methods in order to be able to put yourself forth as a speaker, and sometimes they all act the same. That's not the way you should really do it. And the key thing for being a speaker or for being any kind of thought leader, because that's what speakers really are. They're thought leaders. They're communicators who really take personal intellectual property and convey that to the world or to their audiences. And to do that, you just need to be you. And that's what I try to do, is I just try to be me. And I'm not perfect for everybody. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't like me. There are a lot of people, thank goodness, that do like me a lot. But there are a lot of people say, you know, that you know, they don't like Jeff Hazlett. Well, I'm okay with that, because I'm being me. And as long as I'm happy with it, that's all that really counts. And so that's the way I look at it. So I think if, if I can do anything for speakers is to show that I'm going to go out there and cause tension in, the, in, in our profession. And I'm going to do things differently from the stage than the way they would normally do it. So I might use a swear word. I might uh, rant and rave. I might put a little bit more of a performance on it and spin it. And I'll do the model a little different. I was doing that 15 years ago, you know, or 20, or maybe how many, how many years ago, in the mid-80s, when I 
join the NSA, I remember going out and getting sponsors for my talks. You know, I would get Kodak or Xerox to, to pay me $50,000 to sponsor a series of speeches that I would go out and do, say, in the quick printing industry. And nobody was getting sponsors for speakers. Well, now that's a little bit more common today, to have somebody underwrite the basis of your talk. So that was something. And even now, I'm doing product placement, or I'm getting people to put things in my books, you know, where I use their technology as a snap tag or as a 2D dimensional barcode or QR code. You know, that you can use in a book and then use a video. So, you know, I try to just uh, cause a little tension and to be me. But look at a good athletes. I mean, what do good athletes do? They practice the basics. And that's what speakers need to do is practice the basics. I mean, if you're practicing those basics, no matter what that is, the staging, the way in which the lighting, the, the performance, the practicing of, of your craft... And whether you do that as a marketer, which I do every single day, I mean, I'm known as one of the, you know, was, uh, Forbes calls me the celebrity CMO. Well, why? Not only just because I'm on, you know, Celebrity Apprentice and those things, but because I'm out there in front of everybody. And by being out in front, then, again, causing that tension, then I'm going to be better at my craft. And so I think that's what you have to do every day. What can a speaker do every day to get better at their craft? Well, go look at other speakers that do things differently. I mean, I don't, see, I go into everything with, I don't know what I don't know. And in order to be a maestro, the first thing I have to do is be willing to risk or be willing to be a beginner. And so I tend to look at almost every speaker as how the, how do they do that? Ooh, I like the way he did that. I like the way she positioned. I like that, that phraseology that they use. Not that I'm going to steal their content or take their content, but I might look at how they did that and see how can I make that my own in my own style. Then certainly I'd want to do that. So. Now, do you do the same thing in terms of people doing media appearances or do you draw – examples from other people in other industries yeah certainly in media appearances there are you know even comedians i'll look at some comedians and say wow that's a cool style how can you use that kind of craft you know that's that side of the craft and in what you do so uh, but certainly in media although media i tend to look at what is it they need and that's why i've become such a you know a celebrity in terms of talking a talking head or you know being a resource for media is i know what they want and I try to craft it in a way of inside my own brand and give it back to them. Not that I want to give it to them in the way exactly they want it, but in my style. And that works, and that's the reason why they call. That's the reason why they'll, I'll be in Las Vegas and they'll do a satellite hookup to get me on for two or three minutes as a talking head. Now, they're going to pay three or $4,000 for that, but why are they doing that? Because they know I'll give them something that's quotable, watchable on television, and then they'll be able to use it. So, Jeff, let's talk about the speaker who doesn't necessarily have the budget to hire an agency or hire a marketing firm. What, what can they do to create their own marketing plan, their own PR plan? What would you do? Where would you tell them to start? Well, start coming to NSA. That's the first thing. Because in NSA, I mean, this is where you learn the craft. This is where you get the ideas and learn how other people have done it. And then, then of course, social media. I mean, come on. It's the biggest use of OPM I've ever seen in my life. Other people's money. And you've got to be participating in this and engaging in your communities and building up the audiences and building up the craft. Again, you know, engage in that community. And if you're not utilizing it, you're making a big mistake. You know, I get my number one lead source. It's people who come to my website. Number two, Twitter. By far, I get more bookings through Twitter than any other thing we do. And I use bureaus. I use outside salespeople. Twitter. I get more through that. 
And so that tells me that this stuff works. So that's one way in which you can use OPM, other people's money, to make it work for you. All right, and Twitter's a tool that supports your plan. Talk to us about how a speaker can create their own marketing plan. Well, they have to have a plan. So what is it you want to do? I mean, what is it you want to be? Uh, who do you want to be? And so you've got to get clear about that. And then what's the essence of your brand? So what are the key elements of the brand? You know, like, for instance, we show myself as a global business celebrity. So we show myself in settings with, in celebrity kinds of settings. We show myself with lots of famous people, which I tend to get, get on and do and be with. And then we show me in, in, with lots of international and national media. We, we, you know, we take the international pieces, so meaning global, and we activate around that. And then we show the essence of Jeff Hazlett, and that's the sometimes cowboy. And so we show the boots. We show the fact that I'm back on the ranch in South Dakota, and we talk about those things because, in essence, that's who I am. You know, your, your brand is nothing but a promise delivered, so it's real critical that you get real clear about what your brand is. You know who you are. Well, I, you know, if you don't know who you are, your audience won't know, right? So, you know, I, I almost stumble on that, but, but I, you know, I have a real sense of what I want to be and who I want to be. And it's like even being married. I've been married to my wife now for 30 years. Well, I know me and I wouldn't want to be married to me, but I know who I am. And so, and if you know that, then you can, you can really branch yourself out and be, you know, you can put you in a lot further places because you know that there's certain things you can do and can't do. I had someone come up to me here recently at an NSA function and said, well, I didn't know who you were. I said, well, you shouldn't. And she goes, well, but you're, you're a big thing. I said, well, maybe in some groups, but not to you, obviously, because you didn't know who I was. And she goes, well, yeah, but I should know who you are. I go, no, you shouldn't. I said, if you're not a C-suite executive and a Fortune 100 company or maybe a Fortune 1000 company, if you're not in a business takeover situation where I'm going to take your business over, if you're not a chief marketing officer, then you should know who I am. That's my audience. My group is that. And so for those people, they know me, and I'm a first name, and on a first-name basis with almost every CMO in the Fortune 1000 companies anywhere in the world. But I wouldn't be known to speakers. Why? Because that's not my target audience. And I love them. But I don't care about them, and 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 it's really you know, and it doesn't mean you I don't. Won't. You don't care about marketing to them. No, I don't yeah. care. I mean, I care about so them as you're people. So you put in, <laughs> yeah. you're putting yourself in front of people who can buy. The speakers don't buy from you. you no, want, the, right. the speaker's never going to buy from me. <laughs> so you want to put yourself in front of people who can buy from you. You understand? Oh, absolutely. And that goes back to the marketing plan we talked about. Uh, yeah. In addition to knowing who you are, you also know who you're not. Well, and I think that's a key of knowing who you are, right? So I, I just try to be me. I can't be somebody else. It's hard, it's hard enough being me. So much less thinking about being somebody else or being something different than yourself. And I, I just, you know, and I don't know if that's just from, you know, being from South Dakota um, or just having a, you know, a great... Well, you'd like us to believe that because it's part of your brand. It's part of the brand. It's part of the stick. I mean, I got to tell you, for, for, you know, even when I was in corporate America, when I was in, you know, Fortune 100 companies, I had people underestimate me all the time because I kept saying, hey, I'm just from South Dakota. And, and, and I'd clean the clock with them all behind, you know, all, every step of the way. I'm plotting against them. I'm working against them to either get them fired, move them out. So we were moving ahead because that's my job. That's what I do for, you know. My job is to make small companies look big to pe take people over and to turn things around. I'm very good at that. And, you know, I don't have long attention spans. I will never be with a company more than a couple of years. I will never have deep, long relationships other than a few because I just can't keep it in my head long enough, you know. Well, it's been nice knowing you, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, it, it, but it's not, you know, 
it's just you know I just don't have the capacity for it because my my ADD brain is is like off thinking about other things and same thing. But it gives you the capacity to hyper focus. Hyper, I'm hyper focused. I can I am best. I'm always best when I'm put into chaos, and I'm the one person you want in chaos. I am at home at that. You know, I recently had a press thing blow up for a client where we had a fifty million dollar raise uh, on a round of funding for a client, and it got leaked about a week early. And, you know, so immediately we got to be put into action. So for me, it was like, this is great. Let's go, you know, and, 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 and start moving and tell the CEO he had to do this and this guy this and this. So for me, that's just normal stuff. For other people, it's different. Thank you, Jeff. Now we go to CSP Terry Langhans, chair of How and Now, NSA's Winter Meeting 2013, being held in San Francisco, California, February 22nd through the 24th. Terry? Here's an idea. What if the winter meeting were not just a scaled-down mini-version of the National Conference? What if it were more like a weekend business retreat, where you could truly focus like a laser beam on one specific area of your speaking business? And instead of taking scats of notes and talking about how you got so many great ideas that we both know you're probably not going to even be able to find again, let alone implement. Yeah, you know, what if instead you could spend a weekend in a small group learning from and actually working with an expert team of faculty? I'm talking faculty who would share a handful of critical how-to tangible tools that you could and would use right away right then while you're at the retreat. And better yet, what if you could actually get one-to-one FaceTime and feedback from that faculty? What if you didn't have to ask, what if? Because you don't. It's called the How and Now Weekend, a business retreat for people who want to speak more or speak better. It's going to be in San Francisco, February 22nd through the 24th, which means you're not going to have to miss the Super Bowl this year, but you will need to pick a side, meaning you're going to have to decide, do you want to work on your marketing or on your presentation itself? So if you pick the speak more side, you'll focus on marketing, business development, how to get more of the bookings you really want how to talk and write about your programs and presentations, how to attract more prospects and trigger a decision to book you. On the Speak Better side, you'll focus on your presentation craft, structure, content, stories, delivery. And regardless of whether you do training, breakouts, or keynotes, you're going to learn how to get even better in front of any audience and have more impact. But here is the best news ever, ever. Regardless of which side you choose, you're going to get the recordings from both. Plus, you have my promise that when you leave that retreat, you will be refreshed, re-energized, and equipped with the tools you need to have and the feedback you can actually use to have more focus, more impact, more bookings, and more referrals. It is not too soon to register. Seating is limited on each side of the aisle. And please, only one How Now Brown Cow joke per person. 
Thanks, Terry. The How and Now Weekend. Speak more, speak better. February 22nd through the 24th in San Francisco, California. Get more details and register today by visiting the NSA website at nsaspeaker.org. We now go to Singapore to visit with Shirley Taylor, president of APSS, Asian Professional Speakers, Singapore, where the spirit of Cavett is alive and well. Their theme is collaboration is the new competition. Join me now as Shirley Taylor explains what this means. Talk about how collaboration is the new competition. What does that mean? A couple of years ago, I came to Camp NSA as a vice president, and I came at the time with my president, Tim Wade. And that was when we learned for the first time about Cavett Robert, the founder of the Speakers Association, the NSA. And that's had a huge impact on me personally, learning about Cavett and his spirit of sharing and the spirit of Cavett. So when Tim and I went back to Singapore, we shared all our learning with our APSS members and we shared the story of Cavett. I love talking to people who knew Cavett and, um, and I think more people need to know about it. And, and it's such a simple story. It's such a simple story. This guy wanted to set up a speakers association. A lot of his friends said, it'll never work. It was 40 years ago he was talking about abundance. Yes. As president of APSS, we are not past a gavel at the beginning of our term. We are past the Cavett book. That's had a big impact. So now the spirit of Cavett is in Singapore. We call it the spirit of APSS. We are advocating this sharing spirit more and more and more and the concept of building a bigger pie which I'm sure you know all about building a bigger pie because of course in Singapore just like in all a lot of other places in the world where I've got my piece of the pie and I don't want to share it uh, and if I get together with all of you you might get to know more about everything that I've been doing and you might now take my piece of the pie away so we wanted to start spreading the word that we can build a bigger pie if only we collaborate let's all get together and all work towards the same goal and we'll just make a bigger pie and you know what since we've started sharing that idea more and you can't do it just once you've got to keep doing it over and over again since we started doing that in Singapore, I think we've definitely making great head, headway into building a much more collaborative nature. So more people are hearing about APSS, more people are joining the association, and the more you learn, the more you grow, the more you contribute, the more you, you learn as well. So we're sharing this concept and, and sharing the Cavett story. So some of the other ways that we are collaborating with each other is actively forming mastermind groups, which has not been done to a great extent before in Singapore. So the executive committee this year, we made a point of formally setting up ways members could join mastermind groups. We get together every couple of months, and it's not just cup of coffee and lunch and a, and a gossip definitely not a couple of weeks before the date one of us will send out an email saying give us some topics that you want to talk about or two issues or a question or something like that so 
we each submit a question or an issue that we want to talk about and then it goes on the list and the person who's organized it will type out the list and say this is what everybody wants to talk about so before the meeting we can all start thinking about it so when we actually get to our mastermind we got to keep it really tight because there's six people so the person who's organized it will that will then say okay let's start with so-and-so so tina this is your question and then we go around each one of us will have our say and contribute something to what Tina's issue was and then we'll move on to Nishant and Nishant will tell us what his question is or his topic and then each person in the group will talk about their ideas about what he can do by the end of two hours our heads are buzzing our heads are buzzing with ideas and sometimes some of the guys there one of the guy Christian said you know what I get more out of these mastermind meetings than I do sometimes out of our monthly meetings so we feel so much benefit from this mastermind group that we wanted everybody else to benefit as well so we've helped a lot of others set them up and slowly slowly they're taking them forward now and trying to find their own groups and, and how they will work best we have a theme collaboration not competition collaboration is the new competition and it's just all about helping each other and the more we help each other the more we can all learn and grow and the biggest thing that we've done this year is a book we've created a book we've had it published by marshall cavendish 88 secrets for achieving greater success at work 22 contributors all members of uh, APSS they each wrote four secrets so one topic each but within each topic four secrets so add it all up and it comes 88 secrets of success and they're all different topics and it was just such a great project to work on 22 people collaborating on a book leadership productivity networking communication skills writing skills email writing sales pitching presentation skills all our different specialities all within this one book so it was a huge project to work on and we're all so proud of it and now we've got 22 people selling that book in the back of our rooms. What advice would you give for speakers in America who had an interest in possibly coming to do work in Singapore? Singaporean audiences, they're very discerning. If they don't like you, they don't like you. And Do they um, let you know? I guess really they're no different to anywhere else in the world, but they, they expect a lot. There are a lot of great trainers in Singapore. So if somebody's coming in from overseas, they expect even more of them have a great message have a great structure have some key points that you can that they can really go home with and have some interaction that's what people want in singapore and i know this is the same all over the world but more so i've noticed it in recent years they want interaction they don't want to just sit there and listen People want to be involved. They want to be interacting with, with the speaker. And this is becoming so much more. But we're expecting a lot more. Finding every way possible of connecting with the audience and letting them connect with the speaker as well. Getting out there into the audience and, and connecting as well. Not just standing at the podium and speaking. That's gone. Thank you, Shirley. Okay, we're on the home stretch here. The November 2012 VOE is almost complete. But it's not, nor would it be, without first hearing from Ron Culberson in a segment he likes to call The President's Message, which is fitting because he is our president. Ron? Thanks, Theo. You know, in the past few years, as we've all tried to recover from the challenges of a weakened economy, 
More than ever, I've heard NSA members say, I'm just not sure attending this event is worth the investment of my time and money. Now, I totally get that we need to balance our time and money with the return we get on any investment. But to be quite honest with you, I've never attended an NSA event where I didn't get more than I invested. Now, I know I'm the president and I'm supposed to toe the party line. In fact, some of you probably asking, is he really objective about NSA or the programs that are offered? And others of you might be wondering, is he required to say that? And still others may ask, how does Ron stay so fit and young looking? Well, the answer to that last question is simple. Fiber. Anyway, as for my ability to be objective about NSA, you're probably right. But let me propose another perspective. Have you ever been driving down the highway and you realize you don't remember the last five miles? It happens all the time. But lucky for us, our subconscious is paying attention to the road, even though our conscious mind is distracted by whatever else we're thinking about. On the other hand, have you ever been somewhere in nature, maybe at the mountains or near the ocean, And there's so much amazing scenery to take in, you can't help but stare at it in awe. That's what I think it means to be present and to really pay attention. And when it comes to NSA, I think we sometimes miss great value because we're not paying close enough attention. If you read the Steve Jobs book by Walter Isaacson, you'll see how fanatical Jobs was about detail. He paid attention to everything. Maybe not so much to his interpersonal skills, but at least to every aspect of Apple's products. I think NSA events are like that. Sometimes we come with the expectation someone's going to give us the gold nuggets rather than our having to pan for them by paying close attention. Unfortunately, that doesn't really happen at NSA or really in any aspect of our life. We have to look for the gold. So when I listen to speakers, I'm not only listening to the content, I'm watching the craft, the words they choose, and the techniques they use. So either way, I get value. Now, as you consider your educational investments over the next year, I'd like you just to consider attending NSA events and really paying attention. In January, there's the Laugh Lab run by Brian Walter, where you're going to get an opportunity to work on your humor, or lack thereof. (laughs) In February, Terry Langens is organizing the How and Now event to help you either speak better or speak more. There are two tracks in this event, and the cool thing is, regardless of which track you attend, You'll get the recordings from the other track. In April, Bill Cates and Val Cade are co-chairing the CSP CPAE Summit to create an opportunity for the more experienced speakers to share valuable ideas. And lastly, David Glickman has an extraordinary convention plan for you in Philadelphia next summer. So I'm thinking you don't decide which event to attend so much, but maybe you go to two or three or all four. If you do, know that I'll be there with you paying close attention so that I don't miss the gold nuggets that are there for the taking. So remember, finding value in life and work, or in our other endeavors such as NSA, is about paying attention. And fiber will keep you fit and young looking. That's what I know. I hope in some way it's helpful to you. Thanks, Ron. Well, that's it. Another edition of VOE is in the can, as they say. Thank you to all our guests for the insights and ideas. Thanks to Brian Walter and Terry Langhans for sharing two great NSA events. A special thank you to singer-songwriter Kelly McGrath, who has generously contributed her music to VOE. You can learn more about her and her music by visiting www.kellymcgrathmusic.com. Thanks to you, the listener, for listening, and thanks to all the volunteers who make NSA possible. 
Be sure to visit the NSA website to register for the Laugh Lab and the How and Now Brown Cow, sorry, Terry, conference. And check us out on Facebook and let us know what you're thinking. Thanks, too, for the wonderful emails and fan mail. It really means a lot. So feeling the love, peeps. And until next time, get out there and do, <laughs> keep doing the voodoo that you do so well. And it won't be long before our ship comes in. It won't be long before our ship comes in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.